Sometimes the message of the Bible feels really simple. Like it's pretty easy to get your arms around the basic narrative that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. He's the greatest being in the universe, all right? And he makes humankind to share in his goodness and to have fellowship with him, to be his image bearers on the earth. But mankind messes that up. Humans rebel and they sin and they put themselves in the place of God. And that results in spiritual death, it results in physical death, and a separation from God. But God, in his great love, says, I don't want there to be this separation between me and my people. And so I'm going to send Jesus, and I'm going to offer him as a sacrifice so that that separation isn't there anymore. And then one day, it's not going to be like this anymore with brokenness and evil and darkness in the world. And one day it's going to be back to where man and God are in fellowship. Like that's the basic overview of the message of the Bible in like 75 seconds. And like it's pretty easy to track that narratively speaking, but there's, there's maybe just like one problem with that. And it's that the more that you think about it, the less it actually makes sense. Like the more that you stop and consider sin and what it actually really is, like the darkness and brokenness and evil associated with sin, the more you think about the consequences that sin has to bring of separation, the more you self-reflect and consider how much sin you maybe have in your own life, you start to realize that humans are capable of doing some pretty jacked up stuff. You recognize that we're not just capable of it, but that we have done it. And we still do sometimes. If I try and like put a list together of all of the evil in my life that I have done, the wrong thoughts and the selfish actions and the greed and the envy and the scorn. I don't even know that I can fully do that. I don't have enough paper. So the question then becomes, if sin is so bad, why would God forgive it? And if sin is so pervasive in my life, how could I actually be worth dying for? Surely it's not possible that sin could be that bad, right? So like we take sin that we know to be so bad and we, we're trying to understand it, so we're like maybe we bring it a little closer. Maybe it's not actually as extreme as we think. The flip side of that, sometimes it's very similarly super difficult to understand exactly how holy that God is. To think of a being so good and so different than any other being you've ever interacted with can sometimes be a little tricky to like fully contextualize how good he is. When you consider all of history and when you consider every person that you've ever known, it's pretty clear that no one acts like God 
Acts. The obvious caveat being Jesus. But can anybody be that good? Like, sure, like nobody actually keeps their word every time. Nobody actually operates with other people's self-interest or other people's best interest over themselves every time. Nobody else is capable of this level of compassion and grace and mercy. So is it even possible that a being like this could exist? Surely it's not possible that a God could love to that extent, right? And so maybe because we have a hard time understanding some of these extremes, um, and maybe because sin is everywhere around us and it's within us, it's tempting and easy for us to discount how bad it actually is and because God feels unrelatable sometimes or maybe when we consider how good he actually is, it makes our sin feel a whole lot worse that we've ever rebelled against him. Sometimes it can be easy to squint our eyes and say, is he actually that good? So while it's easy to maybe know the message of the Bible at an intellectual level, it can prove a little trickier upon closer reflection to like know the message of the Bible experientially and personally. But the problem is if we don't actually understand the proper distance between these two things, how awful and evil that sin is and how good and gracious that God is, we cut the legs off of the gospel because that prevents us from operating with the proper sense of urgency that our sin requires and having the proper posture of awe for who God is. It's only when we can like, properly understand both sides of the coin that we can get our arms around the message of the gospel wide enough to let it actually transform us. So we have to understand how bad sin is and how good that God is. Do you want to know how to fall in love with God more? Do you want to know the secret to walking with him more closely? Do you want to know how to hate sin and its consequences? And do you want to more fully bear his image and live out your purpose? Then you need to read Hosea. The message of Hosea contains the same themes of the larger story of the Bible and specifically deals with highlighting these two extremes of God's goodness and sin's wretchedness. The book of Hosea does this through a story of Hosea's personal life and then through messages that God delivers through Hosea to the people of Israel. But this somewhat makes the question, well, okay, if we've already just established that sometimes it can be a little difficult to understand how good that God is and how bad that sin is, how does Hosea solve that problem? Hosea explains those concepts of two things that are maybe a little difficult to understand through the lens of something that we all intuitively understand, which is human relationships. Specifically, a marriage and the parent-child relationship. And Hosea breaks down and examines what those relationships look like when they are broken and then when they're mended. If you've got your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn open to Hosea. We'll, we'll just sit in Hosea for this evening. 
Chapters one through three set up a parallel where God gives Hosea the directive to go marry a woman who uh, is a prostitute. And this is directly symbolic of God's relationship with Israel where he says that the people of Israel have prostituted themselves by going after other gods. So we read on through chapter 1 that Hosea and his new wife, Gomer, have children, and God directs Hosea to name these children the consequences that are going to come to Israel because of their unfaithfulness. He names them Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. And Jezreel means like he will scatter or he will sow. If that seems extreme to you, which at first glance it might, chapter 2 gives us some context and some details as to God's relationship with Israel and why there are these consequences. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 2. For their mother, talking about um, the nation of Israel, has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. If you skip down to verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So we learn the backstory of the relationship between God and Israel, and really like between God and all of mankind, uh, in the sense that God is the one who has provided blessings for his people. We don't really talk in terms of bread and water and wool and flax and oil and drink. At least I don't personally think of those as like my staple possessions. Um, But consider it this way. He's the source of all the good things in their life. Their health, their wealth, their relationships, their food, their water, their homes, their wisdom, their positive traits of understanding and righteousness— All of that, absolutely all of that has come from God. And yet, the people of Israel look to other gods. They directly credit idols as the source of these things, of their provision and blessings and security. And if that feels a little whiplash-inducing, if that feels a little crazy, it's because it is. To hammer this point home, God uses this analogy of a husband providing for his wife only then to have the wife credit extramarital lovers as the people who were providing the good things from the husband. Think of yourself in this situation. Okay? You're married to somebody and you take care of them exceptionally well. You provide for them physically, you provide for them emotionally, you're a consistent companion, you share all that you have, um, you love them. And then your spouse goes and sleeps with other people. And simultaneously, they are thanking them 
for the car that you gave them, the meals you cooked them, the emotional support you showed them, the vacation you took them on last spring, and the kids that you have been raising. That is absolutely bonkers, right? Like, that makes no sense. But that's what we do when we mistakenly place our trust and our hearts in the care of anything or anyone but God. But America is my source of freedom and liberty and joy, not the gospel. Or my job is my real source of security. That's how I know things are going to be provided for me because I can work to earn a living. Or my health or my athleticism or my smarts or my personality or my work ethic is the reason that I have the things that I have. My family and my friends, those are the ones who know me best. Those are the ones who support me when nobody else does. My kids, they're the source of joy and meaning and purpose in my life. When we do this, when we put anything else in that place of God, when he is the one who's blessed us, we make the same mistake that Israel did. We are equally as foolish And in light of this, does this analogy, does this lens help you understand your own sin a little bit differently? Does it help maybe make you understand that it's worse than you've possibly accepted? That turning away from God towards other pursuits or giving other things credit or trust is, in God's eyes, just as wrong as that jacked-up situation with a spouse and lovers. Chapter 2 goes on to detail out the consequences of this unfaithfulness from Israel and how God would, to a certain extent, give them up to these desires. And it would seem bleak at this point and that this relationship has been too broken and too damaged to continue. But verses 14 through 23 describe God's pursuit of Israel in spite of unfaithfulness and his desire to rekindle their covenant and to be together forever. Maybe starting in verse 16. Actually, no, verse 14, because it, it fits with the song we were just singing. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, or valley of trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by, my na or by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Verses 22 and 23 go on to talk about how God inverts these consequences and these, um, the names of the children that he gave Hosea to give to his children of saying, uh, they shall answer Jezreel, uh, or I will scatter, I will, 
scatter her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So in the same way that this analogy helps us to understand that our sins are maybe worse than what we would want them to be, or that they're more rebellious than we would give them credit for, can you help understand now how God's goodness is maybe superior than your previous understanding? That in spite of that level of betrayal, He comes in and speaks tenderly. He comes in and shows mercy. He comes in and says, our whole relationship will be in steadfast love and mercy. Like, I will be faithful to you. I want to be with you. Hosea 3 then tells the next part of the story. Um, And maybe if you're Hosea at this point, if this is linear through chapter 1 and chapter 2, at this point, he's just heard this message of God's redeeming love and of a hope for reconciliation when there was really no reason to have hope. So maybe he's feeling just a little bit hopeful. Yeah, dark times and judgment are going to come, but he's just heard straight from the source that God is better than he's previously understood, and despite Israel's rebellion and the consequences for that rebellion, in the end, God is going to show compassion and mercy. But God gives Hosea a further directive um, and takes it to the next level to move from knowing God intellectually of what his mercy and compassion and pain feels like to knowing it on an experiential level. God tells Hosea to go and get Gomer back, which if we have to go get her back means that at some point she's left. We read that she is loved by another man and is an adulteress uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3. So she's been unfaithful to Hosea, and she's returned to her old ways. And now we start to see how Hosea has maybe been given an inside look into God's heart. How in the same way that God provided for Israel and cared for them, only to be rejected and replaced, now Hosea has done the same thing for Gomer. He's come in, and he's cared for her, and provided for her, and now been rejected and replaced. And so Hosea can relate to God in the pain of rejection and anger and frustration, in the agony and the heartbreak of an adulterous relationship. But now God is challenging Hosea to relate to him on a deeper level beyond just the feeling of pain. Through his decision to return to her, redeem her, and love her once again, he tells Hosea to go and love her. And along these lines of thinking, it might be natural to assume that the reason that God is telling Hosea to do this is so that Hosea can have some sort of unique experience or like become more like God uh, in displaying forgiveness and showing love and have some deeper connection to God's heart. And to an extent, like that is true. Hosea does benefit from showing forgiveness, as we all do when we show forgiveness. Uh, But I don't think that the relatability lesson here is exclusively meant to be to Hosea. The sneaky lesson here 
is that we're supposed to relate to Gomer. In a sense, Hosea, as a sinful human, is Gomer. And we are all Gomer. That's maybe an easy sentence to say. It's a hard thing to think about. All of us are guilty on a personal level of the same rebellion and betrayal of God and His goodness towards us. And in order to like more properly understand that, I think we have to better understand Gomer. Before marrying Hosea, Gomer would have been like deeply affected by her sexual sins. Working as a prostitute would take a toll on you psychologically and physically and emotionally and certainly spiritually. And perhaps there's some level of this is what or this is who I am. That type of identity statement is used by men and women all the time when their like, sexuality is misplaced in their life. But Hosea takes her and marries her and they have children together. And from what we can infer about Hosea being a prophet of God, he probably treats her really well. Right? He's probably very loving to her and vastly different than the other lovers that she has had. But despite that provision and protection and care, Gomer finds herself back in the same destructive habits, giving in to the old way of living before she was in a covenant relationship. Maybe knowing how far she sunk back into what Hosea pulled her out of could produce a level of guilt, frustration, or bitterness, or maybe even like the final state of willful pride. We might be back to that, this is what or this is who I am. So imagine the last person she would expect to see as she's actively living with and loved by another man to come walking through the door is Hosea stepping in to redeem her and take her back. Maybe you can imagine her asking questions or saying things like, what? How can you possibly want me? I'm too far gone. I've hurt you too much. I've got too much baggage. I've said and done too many things for us to be able to make this work what do you mean that you love me? How can that be true? Can you relate to this? Can you recognize moments in your life where you've slipped away or willfully walked away from God and back into the old sinful ways only to have him come running after you? Leaving the 99 and running after you. Through the lens of a broken marriage relationship that is mended via incredible love, intentional forgiveness and mercy, we can begin to understand how despite our sins, God loves us and pursues us. So these first three chapters talk about the marriage relationship, and they talk about how our sin is worse than we can really understand, but God's love is better than we can understand. I don't know about you, but I effectively thought that the book of Hosea ended after the third chapter because 
it's very easy to fall into studying it and reading it, and it's just this story that we fixate on Hosea and Gomer. There's 11 extra chapters after this, so it would be audacious to try and cover all of them, so we might read like a verse from each chapter. Um, There's another lens, though. There's another human relationship that God, through Hosea, is wanting us to understand, and it's this lens of a parent-child relationship. I'd never seen this reading Hosea, uh, but it's a stop-you-in-your-tracks kind of moment. So there's a shift that occurs. We stop reading about Hosea's personal life, and the rest of the book is written from God's perspective of his relationship with Israel. Um, That promise of eventual redemption that he talked about, of showing mercy on no mercy, and not my people will be my people, is still true, but we, we read more details about the reality of their current situation and the consequences that those actions will reap of kind of how far gone that Israel has been. If you turn in chapter 4, verse 1, we'll blitz through these really quickly. Chapter, chapter 4 and verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Turn to chapter 5 and verse 15. God expands on that previous point. He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Chapter 7, verse 10. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. Verse 11, Ephraim, the largest tribe of Israel, um, kind of a similar name, it references Israel within this book. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria, putting their trust in other nations, not God. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law, But to me they cry, my God, we, Israel, we know you. But Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. And then this phrase is chilling to me. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Just a couple more verses. Chapter 9 and verse 15 says, Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. 
Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. And then the last verses we'll look at to hit this is uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So in reading this and getting a glimpse at God's heart, you can see his anger and frustration and disappointment and judgment. And you get to, you get to see the level of sin that's present in Israel. Consider for a moment how wicked they would have to be for God to say, I will drive them out of my house. To go so far as to say, I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. We, there's a shallow and false relationship where the people don't have true knowledge of him. They cry out to God, but not with sincerity. They may intellectually know God, but they have refused to know him experientially and personally in covenant faithfulness. Can you see through these examples how bad that sin actually is? How despite being totally rebellious, in chapter 7, it talked about the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they don't return to the Lord nor seek him for all of this. Sin is not just, eh, I'll follow God mostly, but I'll dabble in personally doing some things on the side that I want to do. It's labeled as unfaithfulness on par with adultery, and it can get so bad and so pervasive that it eventually warps you to the point that you're unrepentant of your sins. So God is angry, and he's frustrated, and he's disappointed, and there have to be consequences and judgment coming. But look at chapter 11, because... Of all of the chapters in the Bible, I think this is one of the, the most telescopic into God's heart. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. We see God's tremendous care, talking about Israel as a nation and as a people, as like you would a little child. Like Ellis just learned how to walk. 
It's been the coolest thing in the world getting to watch this little dude like stumble and walk and learn how to do all these things. And there's not a single thing you could do other than just love this guy and take care of him and provide for him. And you can hear that tone of concern and care that God has through this lens of a father. But do you also hear the heartbreak of the more that I called them, the, the more they went away. The more I tried to love them, the more they kept sacrificing to things that weren't me. And as a result of that, get verses 5 through 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So maybe we see the boiling point where God, despite his love, And despite his care for these people, says, I am hurt and I am angry and there have to be consequences for what you've done. But then verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over? O Israel, how can I treat you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were cities that were like analogous with Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain that were wiped out and destroyed. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You see maybe pictures of this in the story of the prodigal son, where the son has just totally wrecked his life, but the dad is like out, and he's waiting for him to return. Where Absalom rejects King David and like tries to take over the kingdom, and he's like, don't kill Absalom. As I was thinking about this and trying to think of an example, like for some reason I just thought of Jerry Tush and was like, okay, if one of your children, since you just have a lot, got to a point of being so um, rejected from you, there's never a point where you wouldn't say, how can I give you up? You know, like God's heart is saying, despite the fact that you are turning away, despite the fact that you are running away, despite all, you're still my son, how can I let you over to these destructive things that are going to take your life? And so he has compassion. Do you see how, like, sin is so bad, so much worse than you can understand, but God's love is so much better than you can understand? That despite all of that wickedness, God is still capable of showing compassion on this level? Chapters 12 and 13 do a similar thing. It talks about the tension between the judgment and the consequences that need to come. And chapter 13 reveals that the people had gotten so lost 
that they were participating in child sacrifice as idol worship. And chapter 14 ends the book with a plea to return to God from God himself. And it's beautiful. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. And then God makes these promises. He says, I will heal their apostasy or their waywardness. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So we see to a people, even who had gotten to the point of child sacrifice, that God is still willing to turn away his anger because he loves them and he wants them to come to him. Let's draw our main points and we'll we'll wrap up the lesson. Our sin is worse than we could ever hope to understand. It is tempting to minimize our own sinfulness, to characterize ourselves as good people, or to think about ourselves and our lives like we present them on social media, filtered of all of the bad or the inconvenient. Because we've accumulated so much sin, because it's pervasive in culture, because it makes us uncomfortable, because we want to protect our self-image, because it's easier to keep if we don't classify it as cancerous. Because it's harder to understand how God would want anything to do with us if we are actually as rebellious as we are. It is tempting to minimize our sin. But when we understand our sinful rebellion through the lens of these human relationships like marriage and the parent-child relationship, it brings new light. Hosea positions our sins as adultery, which is the ultimate act of covenant unfaithfulness that we understand. And Hosea tells us our sins are so potent, it can make a father want to drive their child out of the house and begin to hate the child because of the level of rebellion. That's how bad our sins are. But, God's love is also far better than we could ever hope to understand. Have you ever considered that in all these analogies in the book of Hosea, as he talks over and over and over about serial unfaithfulness and adultery and seeking of other lovers, that he's still willing to take back that bride? That speaks volumes about compassion and forgiveness from God, but what does the Bible teach about marriage and divorce? He says, 
Marriage is a forever covenant, and you're not allowed to break it. You're not allowed to separate it, except for one thing. There is a hurt that hurts deep enough with that level of sexual betrayal and emotional betrayal, that adultery, that specific type of betrayal. God still hates divorce, but he understands deeply the level of pain and agony and he gives humans an exception but that's not how he operates with us and he does not take that exception in our own relationship with him he is willing to go above and beyond our limits seemingly an unlimited number of times contingent on true repentance and our willingness to turn to him and chapter 14, verse 4, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. So he gives us a way to have a new heart to love him and to serve him and to stop living in sin. Can you believe that a love like that exists? Can you believe that type of willingness to suffer, that level of compassion and of mercy, that God could love you enough to say, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Because we understand how he feels about us when we plug our own names in there instead of Ephraim or Israel. When God says things like, how can I give you up, Brian? How can I give you up, Christy? No matter what you do, I'm always going to want a relationship with you. And there's nothing that you can do that you can't turn away and come back to me. Child sacrifice, blatant idol worship, flatly unpassionate and hypocritical worship, and cycle after cycle after cycle of backsliding, and yet God still offered redemption to these people, and he will do the same for you. Sometimes it's tricky to really like deeply understand the message of the Bible because it can feel hard to wrestle with this seeming paradox that our sins are so bad but that God is so good and that somehow he would still want us despite all of our sins. And so it can be tempting maybe to try and move those things closer together and to say like, well, is our sin not so bad? Or is it really possible for God to be so good? That makes my sin feel even worse. But the answer isn't to try and bring them closer together. The answer is to realize they're farther apart than we could ever possibly process. The book of Hosea ends with verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Hosea's message was written thousands of years ago, but it still applies. 
Let's think on these things as we stand and sing.